I have entitled the message The Perfect Witness of God because this is really what is at issue here. And we're going to kind of pick up where we were last time. We are in John chapter 3, looking at a section that runs from verses 22 down to verse 36. It's really kind of the last testimony of John the Baptist. Shortly after this, he is arrested and thrown into prison into a dungeon, and there he is ultimately beheaded. And so here is a very important passage in the sense that you realize that God in coming to earth chose one particular man to be his announcer, to tell the world, this is the Savior. This is the one who takes away sin. And here is this man in his last real sermon that we know of. The interesting twist of the whole passage is who he's actually talking to as he says these things. Let's read through the passage. It says in verse 22, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and they were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan... To whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Jesus answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this my joy is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that is where we stopped last time. So we go on and we read that he said in verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. And he who comes from heaven is above all. What an amazing statement that is. Down in verse 33, he says, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. I was uh, watching the movie Jesus of Nazareth the other night. Hollywood has their version always. And Michael York is the one who plays John the Baptist. And he's out there jumping, leaping from rock to rock. And he's shouting and running around. And he's yelling out, repent, repent. And I hit the pause like I like to do on the video. It's impossible to go through a video at my house without commentary. And I, I pause the thing. I said, do you think he was really like that? Or is this just Hollywood making him run around and shout like this? He was radical. So I'm now convinced that he was just like that. <laughs> you look at all of this and you see the preaching of John the Baptist and he comes down to the end and he says that he who believes in the Son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides upon him. 
You realize the ministry of John the Baptist was so difficult and extreme because of the death situation spiritually among the people he ministered to. Here's people who were, quote, if we could use a modern term, gospelized, in the sense that they had the scriptures, they had the teachers, and they had the word of God, as it were, spiritually almost coming out their ears. Of all people, they should have been the most alive and receptive, but they were the most dead. So he had to come along and shock them, and his message was radical because they were so deep in sin. Now the amazing thing is that out of then these people in the nation that are in that condition, there come the followers of John the Baptist. You would assume then that all that become his followers would be great people of God. The problem in this passage is that they were not. Some went on to follow Christ, some stayed with John when they should have gone on to follow Christ. What you have then in the passage, it runs from verse 31 down to verse 36, is effectively a sermon from John to those followers who have not left him to go on and follow Jesus. It becomes an amazing sermon to look at. Last time we talked about the contention of John's disciples as they came wanting to make an issue of Jesus and his following versus John. We talked about John's contentment in the face of all of this and his reaction. Now we come to the climax, really, of all of John's preaching, of everything that he was born for, literally. And then we come down to the contrast of the decision that a man or a woman makes about Jesus Christ and where that will land them in eternity. So the climax and the contrast is really what we're going to be looking at now. In the climax of John's preaching, one of the things that comes out immediately here in verse 31, remember who he's talking to, is that Jesus is the only divine witness of God. So they looked at John, pretty much the people in general received John as a prophet. They hadn't had a prophet, prophet really in hundreds of years, and all of a sudden here comes this classic Old Testament type prophet. So John now has these followers that are enamored with him, but they're not going on to follow Christ. They're even trying to cause division between the two parties that are out there baptizing. And the first thing John says here to his disciples is, you need to realize Jesus is the only really divine witness of God. And he says that in verse 31 with these words, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, I might as well tell you that the commentators are divided on this. Many good commentators feel that from verse 31 down to verse 36, it's not John the Baptist speaking, but it's John the Apostle, the author of the book, putting in his commentary, as he does throughout the book. He'll just sneak it in there. And sometimes you have to do a double take to understand whether it's John or someone else, something else going on. Many good commentators feel that John the Apostle here is putting his words in from here to the end of the chapter. Now, I do want to say that the words are true either way. So we don't really need to argue about whether this is John the Baptist preaching or John the Apostle writing his words, because the words are true every way. But I do want to say this. I don't see any need to take that view. The view that this is John the Apostle writing. I don't see any need to take that view for this reason. There is here a context. The context is very definite. It's the problem of John's disciples who have become religious, who love to hear preaching, but are not going on to embrace the only Christ who can save them. John can't save them. 
Neither can God apart from Christ. There is no way for them to say, well, we're not devout to God, and we believe in God, and we follow this great preaching, and therefore we're going to heaven. No, not unless they go on to follow Christ, you see. So that's the context. And in my mind, the interpretation of the passage must reflect that context. To suddenly take the view as you move through and say, well, now we're suddenly switching over to John and he's just making his comments, to me sort of goes against the natural flow of the whole thing. Some of the commentators will say that the reason you have to believe it's John the Apostle is because John the Baptist has had no way of knowing these great and lofty New Testament truths, the kind of things you would find in the book of Ephesians and so on. Well, I don't agree with that because don't forget who this man is. This man was singled out among all men who have ever lived to be the announcer of God come in the flesh on planet earth. Don't underestimate how much he understood. So here, as you read through the passage, you find nothing is really gained by that other approach. It throws no new light on the passage. It has an awkward break and it would never really occur in the mind of a simple reader just moving through the Bible that this is John. You would assume it's John the Baptist rolling all the way through. It's very natural in that sense, and it has a lot more force to it, I might add. Otherwise, it just sort of becomes a, a collection of random, neat statements about Jesus and wraps up the, the, a nice chapter. But this way, the chapter comes to a dramatic conclusion with a powerful appeal to the remaining followers of John that either you leave me and go after him or the wrath of God is going to abide upon you forever. It's a radical ending to a radical ministry when you look at it that way. Now he says, he who is of the earth is earthly. He's really speaking of himself. You know, these men won't let go of him and he's saying, look, I might be called of God, I might be blessed of God, I might be anointed of God, sent from God, but after all, I'm of the earth. I'm a child of Adam. Then he says, I'm basically just a man. Then he says, by contrast, the one you must follow. Verse 31, he comes from above. He is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. In other words, even in the best of my preaching, you're still getting John the Baptist out here. You're still dealing with a guy who eats grasshoppers for dinner, wears a camel hair outfit, and is pretty wild. In the end, I'm just a man. But what he's saying about Jesus is that he is not just a man. He is effectively God. He is from above. He is above all. Turn, could you, to the right in the Gospel of John, and you find Jesus saying that himself. You know, there are those people that will tell you Jesus never really claimed to be God. Just read his words. He's so clear about it. He says, Jesus himself, in John 6.33, says, For the bread of God, doesn't get any clearer than this, the bread of God, he says, is he who comes down from heaven. Why did he come? To give life to the world. Go to John chapter 8 to verse 23. He says, to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Then in verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So you have the followers of John the Baptist and they're not getting the point. 
John is trying to give them one last message to wake them up. He knows that his end is near, and he was suddenly snatched from them. This is possibly the last really pointed sermon that he gave them. And what he's saying is this, don't you understand? This isn't just another prophet down here baptizing. We're not just talking a sudden surge of prophets now. Like in the Old Testament, where some of them were prophesying at the same time. He's saying, this man is in a class all by himself. And you need to realize that. So what he does then, to that end, is he to help them understand, he says he's the bridegroom. He's the one that comes from above. He's the one whom God Himself has sent. He is the one to whom the Spirit is given without measure. He is the one whom the Father loves. He is the one into whom hand all things have been given. He is the one that if you believe on Him, you have everlasting life. And if you reject Him, the wrath of God abides upon you. This is no ordinary man. So here is John, and he is exalting Christ, and he is saying, He is the one to follow. There is no one like Him. And in the process, you know what you see? A man whose heart burns with love for Jesus Christ. What you see is a man who literally realized he could never make too much of Jesus. He could never talk about Him too much. He could never exalt Him too high and praise Him too high or trust Him or love Him too much. And the the truth is, we can make too much of a lot of things in life, right? You can get involved in the ministry and make too much of the ministry, and really your life can fall apart right in the middle of the ministry. You can make too much of your relationship with another human being to the exclusion of God. We can make too much of too many things, so many things. But in the end, the truth is, we can never make too much of Jesus Christ. We can never love Him too much. Never trust Him too much. Never praise Him too much. Never speak of Him to others too much. Never be too open to express our love for Him to others. Because He isn't like anyone else. He is in a category all by Himself. He is from above. He's God. I read about a little boy who was asked by his mother how his Sunday school class had gone that morning. The boy said, Oh, we had a new teacher and guess who she was? The mother said, who? Well, it was Jesus' grandmother. Amused, he asked, well, what made you think that? The boy answered, well, all she did was show us pictures of Jesus and tell us stories about him. (laughs) See, that boy obviously had some loving grandparents, and you know how grandparents are. They love to take pictures. The grandmother especially Just give her a chair nearby. She'll sit down and she'll gather you around and she'll open up her purse. And it is amazing how many photo albums can fit in that little purse. And she just loves to point at the pictures and talk of her love. Obviously, this woman had come in with that kind of love for Jesus and sent that boy away. And he had no other conclusion but that she must be Jesus' grandmother. So you realize, of course, his logic and his theology was a little wacky, but his conclusion makes a very strong point, and that is we talk about most what we love most. Here is John, and he is at the end of his life. He's at the end of his ministry. These people have a love for him that goes really beyond their love for Jesus, and he is by example and by words saying, you can never think too much of him. And I want to just encourage you, brethren, when we get to heaven, it's all going to be about Him. And He is going to be all in all in heaven. 
And I want to encourage you today, may He be all in all in our hearts here in the meantime. And may we love Him with the kind of love John the Baptist had. Another thing I see here is that here's John preaching away. You know, he loved to preach. He loved to share. He loved to talk about Jesus. He had this sense that that is what his life was all about. He says, he who comes from above is above all. You know why he was so enthusiastic? Because he realized he wasn't just preaching about some man. He realized that he was preaching about God himself, a man above all men. And that made it, I believe, enjoyable for John. And I'll tell you something, it makes it enjoyable for me. I have had times in my life where I've made my living in sales. And I've talked about a lot of things that I have sold, you know. That's what you do. If you're in sales, you talk about what you're selling. And at times in my life, I have talked about people. I was basically selling people. I've sold management seminars and was effectively selling the person that was putting on the seminar. And what they could do for your life. I have sold seminars where you are taught how to think positive and use the most of your brain power. And if you just get a hold of your brain power, you can be the most successful person on the planet. And I've sold seminars like that. And I can remember standing up in front of groups and saying, this man will change your life. And I've done it as a Christian. And I can remember one time standing up there with my flip chart and my demonstration and the whole thing. Suddenly in the middle of my speech, I thought to myself, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of talking about this man. Jesus changed my life. Not this man. He hasn't even got me the new car I was supposed to get if I was imaging myself into that car, you know, with full regularity and positive self-talk and all this other stuff I'm selling. So I thought, I got to get out of here. I got to abandon this thing. I was just tired of talking about another man. You know why? Because in the end, he was just another man. And you meet the people, you know, you're selling their program, you meet them. And they come in sometimes to do the program and they're in a rotten mood, you know, like you are sometimes. By the time the whole program is over, you're thinking, yeah, just another man. And uh, really no different than the rest of us. But I'll tell you something, I never grow tired of talking about Jesus to people. I never grow tired of saying, this man will change your life because he's not like any other man. Paul the Apostle wrote to the Ephesians and he spoke of God who worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. This is the kind of talk you heard from Paul. This is the kind of thing he would love to write about. I mean, he's only a few verses into the Ephesian epistle. And he's glorifying Christ. He writes again to the Romans in Romans 9.5, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He says, Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Do you love to talk about him? Do you love to tell people about Jesus? Do you realize you're not just talking about an ordinary man? You're talking about God when you tell people about Jesus. It's a whole different kind of a thing. And if you have the kind of love for him that John had, this wonderment is going to naturally come out and it's going to impact people. It really will. I love to read the words of Napoleon who said, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is not a man. 
superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance, he said, does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ, he said, astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas and sentiments, the truth which he announces, his manner of convincing, are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things. He goes on to say, The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers me. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not that of man. One can absolutely find nowhere but in him alone the imitation or the example of his life. I search in vain in history to find the similar one to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here in Christ is everything extraordinary. That's it. That's the message of John the Baptist. That should be the message of every Christian. Every person who knows Christ, every person who has experienced his touch, should be able to talk like that, should love to talk like that, should not be held back by some intimidating personality that causes you to clam up. We have the message. We have the Savior. He's not like any other man. His witness is from above. He is completely different. He is the only divine witness from God. Now because of that, John goes on, and the next thing basically that he says is that he is on, the only perfect witness of God. The only perfect witness of God. One of the reasons for that is that he has first-hand testimony. I love to contemplate that. I went for years wondering how I could find God. I've read the books. I've sat and contemplated the different paths of life. And what I really wanted was to know God. To know that there is someone who has come to earth with a first-hand testimony of what the next life is all about, of what God is all about, and has freely shared this testimony, that is the most amazing thing to me. That is the good news of the gospel. What you read here in verse 32 is this, And what he has seen and heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. This is an amazing thing. What he has seen and heard, he testifies. Now here's John out there, and he's been preaching away. He's got a great following. But he turns to Jesus, and he speaks of him, and he says, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. Yes, John could preach some things about Jesus and about God, but he had never lived in the presence of God. The person he is pointing to had an inner Trinitarian knowledge of God, was one of the persons of the Trinity and is today. A knowledge of God, an understanding of God that no man could ever have, no matter how godly he was and has ever had, that has lived upon the earth. First-hand testimony of God, think of it. Now that's important. William Barclay shared in his commentary some words that I thought were very insightful. He said, John begins by 
asserting the supremacy of Jesus. If we want information, we have to go to the person that possesses that information. He says, if we want information about a family, we will get it at first hand only from a member of that family. Isn't that true? If we want information about a town, we will get it at first hand only from someone who comes from that town. So then, if we want information about God, we will get it only from the Son of God. If we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we will get it only from him who comes from heaven. When Jesus speaks about God and about the heavenly things, says John, it is no carried story, it is no secondhand tale, no information from a secondary source. He tells us that which he himself has seen and heard. To put it very simply, because Jesus alone knows God, he alone can give us the facts about God, and these are the facts of the gospel. Do you really want to know God? The place to go is Jesus Christ. That's the point. If you really want to know God, the place to go is Jesus Christ. And you can dilly-dally and, and make your, your way along through life and sort of work a little out of here and a little out of there and read this book and read that book. If you really want to know God, you've got to go to Jesus Christ because nowhere else has God so clearly revealed himself as in the testimony of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is why you read in the Bible, Acts 4.12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. God has come. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other man equal to him. Jesus is the perfect expression of God. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, it says, God at many times in different places in the past has spoken. But now, the writer to the Hebrews says, and this is the foundation of all of his writing, now God has come and spoken in his Son. Literally, the Greek says, in his Son. Not just by, but in. It was God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. No other name under heaven by which man can be saved. A blind man once stood on a bridge in London reading aloud Acts 4 from a portion of a Braille Bible. Now I told you before the Bible study that every one of us who know Christ have been called and gifted and we need to do something about it. And whatever kind of lethargy may have creeped up on you or me or does, we need to shake it off, the sins and the weights that so easily beset us, and we need to get out there and shine brightly for Christ. You might say, what could a blind man do? And could a blind man ever go out and preach Christ? Probably the average person would say, well, no, but they could probably do some other things. You tell that to this blind man that stood once on a bridge in London reading aloud, get this, from a Braille Bible. Eyes that could not see but a heart full of sight, the sight of the living God in Christ. And as his hands ran across the page to read with his hands, a gentleman on his way home stopped at the edge of the crowd that had gathered to listen. At that very moment, the sightless man lost his place with his hands. While he was groping around trying to find it, he kept repeating the last three words he had just read. No other name. No other name. No other name as he's groping around to find his place again. I know what that's like. You get lost in a message. You know, you're groping. So you just keep on repeating things. So there he was groping. No other name. No other name. 
Many smiled as they watched him, but the inquisitive bystander that had come up went away impressed. You see, he had been searching for inner peace and therefore was ready to be influenced by a few words spoken in season. He knew the entire verse from memory, but that one phrase haunted him. Before morning had dawned, he surrendered to the Holy Spirit's wooing and accepted the Savior. I see it all now, he cried. I've been trying to be saved by my own works and my own prayers, but Jesus alone can help me and save me. He is my mediator. There is no other name under heaven whereby I must be saved. Do you know that? Have you sensed that you are being drawn in a quest for God? Do you feel the Spirit of God working upon you and yet you know that you are not yet connected with Him? There is no other way. He alone can save you. You can't just give prayers to God. People pray all over the world in different religions. It is Christ who must come and save you as you come and trust wholly and only in Him. With all this in mind, it is with all of this in mind, that John the Baptist says to his followers in John 3.32, and what he has seen and heard, he testifies. He is that perfect witness. He is that first-hand witness. And then this amazing thing. With all that in mind, he says this, and no one receives his testimony. It's almost as if to say, this is the most unthinkable thing that could have ever occurred among us as human beings. How could God himself come? How could he come and give first-hand testimony of what God is all about, what heaven is all about, and then no one receives his testimony? And then he says this, we have to qualify this, because in the next verse, he goes on to say that there were those that believe upon him. So we have to qualify it and realize that what he is saying is this, in light of the multitudes that have seen him and heard his witness, very few receive his testimony. So it isn't that nobody, period. It's by comparison. No one's coming to believe in him. What a shocking thing. Prophets have followers. Think of the weirdos in the world that have followers. You turn on the television and watch the news and see the weirdos that have followers. I often sit back and say to myself, why would people follow this guy? I mean, this guy is weird. You know, you look at the people that followed Jim Jones to their death. Was he weird or what? You know, and then you think, well, they were just weird too. So they followed him. The fact is, there's all this work of unseen forces of the devil behind all of this. And people that refuse to follow Christ are going to end up following something. And here is the one perfect revelation of God John the Baptist says, look, I like you guys, I love you guys, but I'm not him, I'm just a man. You need to realize he is it because you are becoming like those that don't receive his testimony. There's nowhere else to go, guys. You must come to him. It's a shocking thing to him that even these followers so close to him are running the danger of being eternally lost. What an amazing thing. I never considered that. Read over these words for years, took them as nice, independent, lofty thoughts, wrapping up the chapter. And now I realize here's John's followers. They've been listening to him preach. They're in danger of losing their souls forever when they are so close. They're right up to the truth about Christ. It's amazing. Jesus had the same kind of concern and the same real problem he faced. Could you turn in your Bible to Matthew 7? Matthew 7. 
Jesus has moved all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, full of profound truth. And now he's pressing in, the very same way John does. He ends up his message with judgment. House built on the sand or the rock, it's one or the other. The rock is the revelation he's bringing, the sand is trusting in human righteous works, which his crowd did. And if you trust in that, you will perish. But as he's working his way toward that, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. He realized, here's all these people listening to him. He knew everything. He knew that when he died, the crowds would be gone. As he was hanging on the cross, there would only be a few, a handful. He knew that in the upper room there would only be a handful like we talked about last time. He's really reaching out to them. He's saying, don't you realize the difficulty really is sin. It's the same thing he said to Nicodemus. It's the same thing we find in this chapter. It is that men love darkness rather than light. And he is saying, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. Why? Because you have to admit you're a sinner and then you've got to repent from it. It's just as John said, you must repent. Jesus said it too. So because of that, there are few that find their way into the narrow gate. So here is this first-hand testimony from Jesus Christ. And John says, and comparatively, almost no one is receiving his testimony. Not only does he have a first-hand testimony, but he has a flawless testimony. Look at John 3.33. He says, He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure to him. For he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure to him. That is to say, you know that every person that preaches the message of God at some point is preaching falsehood. At some point. You know, I've said myself in the past, I know that there are errors in my theology. I just don't know where they are. That's why they're still there. It's the same with you. So all of us at one time or another say things that aren't true. You know, we think they're right when we say them or we wouldn't say them. That's because the Spirit is given by measure to us in this sense that we only have so much light and not any one of us has all the light. And because we have good days and bad days, there's times when we rightly represent God and times when we wrongly represent God. But with Jesus, who was God come in the flesh, God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, the Spirit of God moved within him without measure. Get this, everything he said, everything he did was perfect representation and testimony of God. Not one wrong word, not one mistake, not one sentence given that would lead you in the wrong direction. Every bit of it was absolutely perfect revelation, flawless from God. And then the point that goes along with that is that then everybody that receives his testimony comes to certify that God is true. They come to the place where they can say, you know what? I put him to the test and I found out that he's true. He's not a liar. Everything that led up to Christ is true and everything that has come flawlessly through Christ is a perfect representation of God. And if you will receive his witness, 
then you know God. That's the point. In contrast to those that did not receive him, here he gives this wonderful revelation of God, and yet so many don't receive him. When Andrew heard, this is the Christ, he went and followed him. When John heard, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, he went and followed him. As Peter was told, he went and followed him. As Philip was told, he went and followed him. They believed, and what happened? They found it all to be true. And they went out and turned the world upside down. Now listen, have you found it all to be true? Do you know Jesus to be all that he is said to be? Then let's go out together, let's pray for one another, and let's do what we can to turn this world upside down because the clock is ticking off and Jesus is coming back and the days are numbered for the human race. And people are on a collision course with the wrath of God and many of them don't understand it and know it. And we need to tell them and tell them in love and tell them like the man we believe in, we really do believe that he's not just another man. In a period where people are groping and they're being given one false way after the next, we have the answer. Could you turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5 to verse 9? Later on, when the Spirit of God was moving on John again, he wrote these words and just continued to develop the things he had recorded in his gospel here in chapter 3. But in 1 John 5, 9, John says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Isn't that great? God comes and works within you so that you can certify that it's all true. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. It's amazing. John is so preoccupied with pointing you back to who Jesus is. The Gospel of John, the writings of John, his epistles are so amazing. So many people have taken them and just read them. That we're so far from God, so steeped in darkness and committed to wickedness. And yet, by the time they have finished reading the writings of John, they've just been absolutely convinced there is no other way than to follow the way of Jesus Christ. And they've come to give their life to Him. So he says in John 5.11, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has received His testimony is certified that God is true because God sent Him and He speaks only the words that are from God. This is the climax of John's preaching. Now, if you go back to John chapter 3, that leaves one thing left in the chapter, and that is the contrast of the decision that is made concerning these things. In verse 35... John says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Do you sense the pressure now? You want to reject Him? Know this, God has given everything into His hand. You think you can arbitrarily follow this prophet, that prophet, this teacher, that leader, and find your way to heaven? There's absolutely no way. Do you understand that this is not just another man? He's from above, and furthermore, he has all power. And you know what that power is going to equate to? This. He's been given all things that regard and concern salvation. So in verse 36, it comes down to this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Here it is, belief in everlasting life. He who believes in the Son has right now everlasting life. You know what is so good about that? Is that it's now. There's no, you're not on probation with God. He doesn't watch you until you die to decide if He's going to let you into heaven or not. If you believe on the Son, you have eternal life right now. There's nothing to pay, there's nothing to buy, there's nothing to work out. But to come and to trust solely in Him to rescue you, and if you believe Him to be who He said He was and is, you have it now. Now what is so glorious about that is that that gives us in the midst of a hopeless, messed up world, the best possible news we could ever bring anybody, because you can come to people who have lived for years in sin, their lives have been so broken up and wrecked up by sin, long-standing habits, everything else, and what you have to offer them is an immediate relief. Immediate There is nothing more immediate than a radical conversion into Christianity in terms of relief. Your sins are forgiven and God comes to live within you. And what happens is immediately you start to miss out on those things that were destroying you before. And the things that wait ahead that if you don't turn will destroy you. What a great thing. So you go out into your workplace, you go out into your life and there are people trapped in their sin. They're hurting. They're messed up. They're wrecked up. Generally the most belligerent ones. You wonder why that relative is so belligerent. Because they're hurting so bad. Generally the most belligerent ones are the ones that are so needful and are perhaps the most open. By the time I was beating people up that witnessed to me, I was the most needful in my life. And just when they thought there's no hope with this guy, I was about that far away from a radical conversion. And I can track you right through it. I was caught in the vortex of the powerful Spirit of God who was pulling me in. And I was fighting because I wanted to hold on to my darkness, but I was sick of the destruction it was bringing to me. You can go out and tell people there is immediate relief for your life. You're going through a divorce, there's immediate relief. You're going through this or that, you've had a death in the family, or you yourself are dying, there's immediate relief. A young worker was working with this believer and he ridiculed him. He was a very devout believer and he was ridiculing him constantly. One day he came up to him and he said, I don't see what your Christianity is doing for you, what you get out of life. You say you're happy, but you're missing so much. The unsaved man that was saying this had ability, he had an excellent position, he had much of the world's goods, but he loved to indulge himself in sin. One day this worldly man failed to report to work. Eventually, when the police forced open the door of his locked apartment, they found his body sprawled grotesquely on the floor alongside several empty liquor bottles. When the tragic news of his death reached the Christian, the Christian said, Yes, thank God, I am missing a lot. He had mocked him, Oh, you're missing so much. Yes, thank God, I am. And you can go out and tell people there is immediate relief. You can begin to miss out today. Oh, mock me if you will. Tell me I miss out on so much as a Christian. You're right. I miss out on sin and depravity and guilt and endless hangovers and loss of relationships. 
and guilt so bad it only perpetuated more hangovers. Oh, I'm missing out all right. Yes, I'm missing out. I'll tell you, I don't miss the night I was strung out on barbiturates and took enough of them to kill an elephant. And all my friends left the one party and there I lay on the floor. And the last stage before you die of an overdose on barbiturates is that your breathing slows down, down, down until you eventually just suffocate and quit breathing. And I remember laying there and I could not move. I could not get off the ground. And I was, I I know now I was within a hair's breadth of eternity. I nearly killed myself that night. And that was only one. I could tell you of the night, I wear the scars on my arms of when I passed out at the wheel, strung out on reds, passed out at the wheel in a car and plowed into the back of a trailer and nearly got killed. I could tell you of people when I was strung out on dope, when I attacked people with weapons and they attacked me back and I nearly got killed. Broken windows, smashed through doors, scars on my arm from the glass cutting me. I've got scars on my head. Miss it? I don't miss it. I'm missing out and I'm glad. You have everlasting life now when you believe on Christ. What you miss is the wrath of God. You see, we're told here that if you don't believe, what you face is the wrath of God. It's such a horrible thing to contemplate. When you realize that there's going to come a moment for each person who has disobeyed God. And, and here the unbelief in the passage is where it says, He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Does not believe. Literally in the Greek it is a sustained disobedience. That's what it is. It's an unbelief that is a disobedience to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and His demand on your life. He made you and He bought you with His blood. And you're to come to Him and receive new life. It is a direct disobedience that's sustained. That's the point. And it goes on and on. And as a result, the wrath of God abides upon you. And you are, the Bible says in Romans 2.5, in that condition, in accordance with the hardness of your heart, treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The Bible is saying that if you refuse to respond to Christ and all these things we've spoken of today, that what you're doing and your disobedience day by day is you're piling up more and more and more of the wrath and indignation of God. This is not an uncontrolled wrath like the wrath of man. This is a righteous response to unholiness and sin that God has. It is a sustained aversion to sin which he must judge and he will judge. And when he does, to pour out that wrath to its full extent, it's going to take eternity in hell from which there will be no deliverance. It will go on and on and on and on. And it's such a horrible thing because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. I want to leave you with this. In the frontier town, a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon that had a little child in it. Seeing that the child was in danger, a young man risked his life to catch the horse and stop it. The child who was rescued grew up to become a very sinful, lawless man. One day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a very serious crime. The prisoner stood there and he recognized the judge as the man who, years before, had saved his life. 
So he pled for mercy on the basis of that experience and the mercy he had experienced earlier from that man. But the word from the bench came from the judge that silenced all his pleas. As the judge said, young man, then I was your savior. Today I am your judge, and I now sentence you to be hanged by the neck until dead. Jesus Christ today is reaching out his arms to you as your savior. If you will come, he will rescue you, he will save you, he will forgive your sin. He loves you so much, he'll save you, he'll forgive, and he will forget forever your sin. But if you put him off and you abide in disobedience, the day will come when the one who so longed to be your savior that he died for you will have to stand before you as your judge and sentence you to eternal death apart from God. Don't make the foolish mistake of thinking your sin is so important and so gratifying that it's worth staying back from God. Confess your sin tonight to Christ. Give your life to Him. Confess your weakness to Him, your inability to be anything God-like, and confess your dependence on Him to lead you in the way everlasting, and He will. You will then come to the place that you too will certify that God is true. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for immediate relief in the arms of our great and precious Savior. God, for those who are right now sensing the move of your Spirit, draw them, Lord, by the cords of your love into the everlasting life that only you can bring. Bring them to the point where they realize it's time to start missing some things and enjoying some other things in a new life with you. Reveal yourself, Father, in a saving way through the work of your Holy Spirit in this hour. And may those that you touch rise up to call you blessed and go out among men to tell the story of the true and living God they found in Jesus Christ. For we do ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.